Yes, good morning, good morning. I know the energy level's a little low. We had a late night for many of us. Uh, how, how many of us were at the game in one form or another? Yeah, you guys, some of us were in the stands. Some of us were behind stands, working concession stands. Uh, either way, I know that it was a late night for many of us. Glad you made the time to be with us here this morning. Um, for those of you who are new, you're joining us here for the first time, welcome. My name is Dan Min, and I have the joy of serving as the pastor here at ACF. And uh, we are continuing on in a series that we kicked off just last week. And so if you weren't here last week, fear not. You can go online to our website or subscribe to our podcast on, on, uh, on Apple Podcasts. And you can get caught up that way. You're not too far behind. But we're in the second part of the series uh, called Faith That Works. Faith That Works. And uh, this is a series based out of the book of James out of the book of James. Now, uh, in fact, if you have your Bibles, you can open up there now to James chapter 2. That's where we're going to be here today. And as you're finding your place, let me just uh, once again give you a little bit of a framework for this series where, when we're talking about uh, faith that works, faith that works. What we're talking about is what does it look like to embody an active faith? A working kind of faith, as opposed to a passive faith. Like, we don't, we don't, if you've been walking with Jesus any length of time, you, you may already know this, but Jesus is not down with a passive kind of faith. Jesus is not like, cool, you believe these things? Awesome. That, that, that's good enough. No, Jesus ups the ante. He ups the, the, the standard, and he says, look, I, I'm glad you believe in these things, but I don't want you to live passively and hold on to these beliefs in sort of a passive way. I want you to actively embody these beliefs. We, we spent a whole series talking about doctrines this, this, uh, the better half of the semester, and this second half of the semester, we're taking those doctrines and saying, how do we then flesh that out in real time? How do we live that out? James shows us what that looks like. But, but the other side of looking at this notion of faith that works is when you begin to live out your faith in real time, what you're going to discover is that, holy, this faith actually works. This whole faith thing, this belief thing, this walking with Jesus thing, it actually works. It's a functional kind of faith. It's not, it's not a broken kind of faith. It's not kind of this wishful thinking, oh God, I hope, God, I wish. It's like, no, you, you begin to live this faith thing out and you begin to find that you're able to make sense of this crazy, chaotic world that we're living in, all the struggles that we face, all the human needs that we have, all begins to make sense in light of living out our faith. And so this is what we mean when we say this is a faith that works. It's not just a faith that where we get our hands dirty and we get into the nitty gritty, like we work it out. But when you work it out, you begin to discover this faith actually works. This is not just a, 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 a kind of a, a wishful whim, whim, you know, sort of, uh, I, I hope that this faith works. We begin to see that this thing actually works itself out. We're in chapter two of this series, and as we unpack this, we're going to discover what does it look like? What does it look like to, to live out this kind of faith, of faith that works? We're going to pick up actually in the second half of James chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 14. I'm going to invite Johnny back up to read today's scripture passage for us. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll put it up here on the screen for you to look along. Uh, but uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 is where we're going to be spending our time here today. Uh, and we'll read up 
till the very end of chapter 2, verse 26. And uh, in case you're wondering, we're working out of the English Standard Version. It's whatever version you have. Feel free to follow along with us. But James chapter 2, verse 14. Johnny, if you don't mind reading that for us, brother. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Friends, I've titled my message today, Living Faith versus Dead Faith. In a lot of ways, when you look at the book of James, it all sort of boils down to this sort of contrast right here, living faith versus dead faith. Now, if I were to present to you here this morning an opportunity to choose the kind of faith you want exhibited in your life, you say, man, this is, this is the kind of faith I want represented of, of my life between a vibrant, life-giving, transformative kind of faith versus a stagnant, lifeless an irrelevant kind of faith, I don't think I need to go far and wide to figure out what your guess would be, what your, what your choice would be. My guess would be, you would say, option A, please. I want a vibrant, life-giving, vibrant kind of like transformative kind of faith. That's the kind of faith I want. I want a living faith, not a dead faith. And yet, James warns us right here at the crux of his letter, he warns us, that some of us might actually be living out of a dead faith as opposed to a living faith. But the question is, how do we know? See, James, James gives us a, a warning here. He says, guys, don't be fooled. I know that this is what you want, but believe it or not, some of you are actually living out of a dead faith. Your faith, though you claim faith in Jesus, your faith is as good as dead. How do we know? How do we know that this warning is for us and not for someone else? How can we tell? Well, this morning, I want to give you three sort of tests to run your life through the grid of these three tests, these three differences that we see in James chapter 2 when it comes to a living faith versus a dead faith. And the first one is this. Living faith is integrated, whereas dead faith is compartmentalized. Living faith is integrated, whereas dead faith is compartmentalized. James opens up this passage with sort of this hypothetical scenario. He says in verse 15, listen, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, in other words, faith that is compartmentalized, faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. What James is saying here is that the true Christian, the true follower of Jesus, lives their life in such a way where their entire lives are colored and filtered through the lens of faith in Jesus. The way they see the world, the way they interact with people, the way they show up in life is primarily through the lens of their faith in Christ. In other words, their faith is so integrated into their lives, they can't even imagine life apart from their faith. It's so integrated into their lives that whatever situation they're in, whomever they're with, in whatever environment they find themselves in, they're interpreting all of that through the lens of faith in Jesus. The problem for the modern-day Christian, we have lots of folks who have compartmentalized their life in such a way that their faith in Jesus is simply a part of their lives. It's like, I, I believe, I go to church, I have faith, I'm part of this fellowship, I'm part of this ministry, but really, when you boil down to it and you take a full survey and inventory of that person's life, you begin to discover faith in Jesus is really just one part of their life. It's just one aspect of their life. And when faith is just a part of your life, guess what? You'll find it real easy to say to the brother or sister who is poorly clothed or lacking in food, hey, go in peace, be warmed, be filled. I'll pray for you. I'll pray. I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, sister. A prayer's not bad, but we think that in that moment, we're being Christ-like. We think that we're being Jesus, and James here is coming along. It's like, what is that? What kind of lame faith is that? You know, like, well, what, is, what, do you, what good does that do? How is that being Jesus to anyone in that moment to which the person who has so compartmentalized their faith would say, I didn't know I was supposed to be Jesus to that person. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that was the assignment. And that's precisely the point that Jesus makes all the way back in the Gospels. Matthew 25, you remember this? He talks about the sheep and the goat. All right? He talks about, and, and he uses the sheep and the goat as, as a metaphor for the righteous versus the unrighteous. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that he favors sheep over goats or anything like that. He's just, he uses it as a metaphor to say, hey, on the final day of judgment, there are going to be two categories of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. The people who are going to enter into the glory of my son and those who will spend eternity apart from me. You want to know his judgment call? You want to know his criteria? The, 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 the basis for how he he judges the righteous versus the unrighteous. Matthew 25, you don't need to turn there. We have the text up here on the screen. This is Jesus speaking. Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, the righteous, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, welcome into eternity with, with me in glory. Spend, spend eternity with me. Welcome home. Come, you are blessed by my father. Listen to what he says next. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will sort of scratch their head and they'll answer him saying, Lord, hang on, hang on. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, not 
Oh, as you believed in these things, as your well best intentions go. No, as you did to one of the least of these brothers, you did to me. Jesus' measurement for righteousness, the ways in which he gauges righteousness in our lives is by asking the question, how integrated really is your faith in me? into your everyday life. Do you, do you, in other words, do you have different hats that you put on as you go through life in different moments of your day? You know, so, some days you put on your, your Jesus hat when you're doing your quiet time, your devotional time, you open up your Bible, you're praying, you put on your Jesus hat. And then you're out the door, you, put, you hang up your Jesus hat on your, on your, on your hat rack, and then, and then you put on your student hat. When you're going to classes or you're studying, you're doing chemistry and you're doing, you know, what is in physics, that, and that's like, I don't know half the things you guys do. You tell me, I'm like, I, I, I went to Bible college, okay? You, you talk, I don't know anything about what you're talking about, architectural science, but you put on your student hat, you put on your, your educate, your academia hat as you're doing, going about your studies. And then you take that hat off, it's social time, so you put on your social hat as you're out and about hanging out with friends and, and socializing, or you might be in different orgs and different clubs, and so you put on the appropriate hat for the different occasion. Some of you, maybe it's a, your Thon Captain hat. Some of you guys literally have Thon Captain hats that you put on, but, but metaphorically speaking, some of you put on your, your you know, you're part of a, 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 serving on a leadership team of a certain organization, you put on the leadership hat. Maybe you put on, you know, in a relational sort of aspect, you know, when, you, when you're with your significant other, your boyfriend or girlfriend, you put on your good boyfriend hat or good girlfriend hat, right? Like you put on those hats and you, you play this sort of game game of sort of musical hats. You take it on and off and you swap all these hats in your life. And you want to know what that's called? It's called compartmentalization. It's called good compartmentalization. And if your faith is just one of many hats that you wear, scripture tells us that your faith may very well be dead. It's like, man, that's, that's harsh. I'm just trying to adapt to my environment. You know, it's like I'm just trying to, I'm trying to fit into to whatever is happening in that moment. And, and scriptures tell me that my faith is dead. Our faith, from a biblical standpoint, should be so integrated into our lives that it's not a hat that we take on and off. Rather, it's a robe that we put on and we never take off the robe of Christ, the robe of righteousness that Christ puts on us that never comes off. Some of you are like, man, I got bathrobes that I never take. I wish I never took that off. It's like, it's wonderful. It's warm. You know, the weather's getting colder. I never want to take that. It's, when you put Jesus on, you never take him off as if he's like this, this compartmentalized thing that in this situation, Jesus has something to say. Do you know that Jesus has something to say about every situation in your life? Jesus has something to say. He has something to feel about every situation that you face in your life. Not just in your quiet times, not just in our devotional times, but every situation in your life, Jesus has something to say. So why would we take the Jesus hat off at any moment? Put on the robe of righteousness and allow it to never come off. Our faith in Jesus influences everything about our lives. Our faith, living faith, is integrated, whereas dead faith is compartmentalized. But now what does that look like? Well, that leads us to our next point, and that is living faith leads to obedience, whereas dead faith never moves beyond belief. 
Living faith leads to obedience, and dead faith never moves beyond belief. Now, we already established this plenty in our last series. Believing is important. What we believe matters. We spent a whole series banging that drum. What you believe matters. And so pay attention to your beliefs. Pay attention to your doctrines. Pay attention to what is at the base level of who you are. What we believe matters. But our faith has to move beyond just belief. I love how Eugene Peterson put it in the message. He paraphrases James chapter 2, 19 this way. He says, he says this. He says, do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. I love Peterson. He's, you know, you could tell he's from New York. He's got some sarcasm. That's just great. You know, like, what are you doing? Like, that, what do you think you're doing? Demons do that, but what good does it do then? What James is getting at here is believing, friends, is the easy part. Anyone can believe. Even the demons, for goodness sake, believe that. They're able to do that. If all you do is believe biblical ideas, principles, and spiritual concepts, and that's where your faith journey ends, what you'll likely end up with according to James, is a dead faith. Uh, let me paint the alternative for you. The alternative here, James gives us an example through the life of Abraham. He points to Abraham's act of obedience. He points to Abraham's act of obedience. James says, was not Abraham, verse 21, our father justified by works and when he offered, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, if you know the story, it's kind of a crazy story where God puts Abraham through this sort of crazy test of sorts, this, this insane test. He tells Abraham to basically sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering on the altar. Now, our minds, that's, you know, again, if you have no sort of church history or background, biblical background, you might hear that and you're like, wait, what? What did he do? Like that, he, and in our minds today, that's utterly bizarre and inhumane, largely because we don't, one, have a sacrificial system. And so this idea of, you know, offering up burnt offerings is a foreign concept to us. In fact, we don't need to do that because Jesus was our final burnt offering that serves for all of eternity the atonement for our sins. So we don't, we don't have a sacrificial system. Jesus was that sacrificial system. That's why Hebrews says he serves as our great high priest who stands in that gap. And so in our, in our day today, this idea of a sacrificial system is no more. But back in this time, this, this sort of offering up burnt offerings was a normative practice. They would offer up the, the firstborn of their livestock, the first of their crops, their harvest. They would offer all of that up to the Lord as an act of worship. Similar to how we open up our gathering here by singing songs of worship like, Oh, Christ be magnified on the altar of my life. Like that's, that is the, the equivalent of what they would have done during this time of offering up these burnt offerings of singing songs of worship and offering their worship to God through these burnt offerings. God comes along and wants to see if Abraham honored the Lord, worshiped the Lord above all else to the point where he asked them to sacrifice what was most precious to him, his son Isaac, which by the way, was the fulfillment of a lifelong promise. Can you imagine that? Right, like God says, Abraham, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make your descendants as vast as the stars. Boom, all these years, all these years. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. Boom, he gets Isaac. And he turns around on Isaac's first birthday. Hey, remember that promise that I, I gave you, that I fulfilled in Isaac? I want him back. It's like, hang on, what, what do you mean? Right? And now we're not gonna unpack this. There's a whole sermon in just this little story and this little story in the Bible in and of itself. But uh, spoiler alert, Abraham walks in obedience, okay? He says, okay, 
Okay, God, you are most important to me. See, this is a guy who integrated his faith so much so in his life that faith wasn't just a compartment in his life, just one aspect. It filtered everything of all of his decisions. And so he says, okay, God, I will walk in radical obedience. He says yes to God. And God, again, long story short, God ended up providing Abraham with an alternative option. God says, no, no, okay, I see your heart, Abraham. I see where your heart is. And God offers up Abraham another sacrifice to lay before the altar that is not his son. Now, just to be clear, I don't believe God will ask you to sacrifice your firstborn on the altar, okay? You know, that, I, don't, I don't believe that. And so we can all take a breather like it's like, man, I don't, I don't know if I want to follow this God. I don't believe that God will do that. But, but I do believe God calls us to a life of not just belief in him, but one of radical obedience to him. And sometimes he's gonna ask us for what is most precious to us. It might not be your firstborn child. It might not be the fulfillment of a promise that, that, that you've been waiting for for hundreds of years, but God may very well ask you for what is most precious to you and ask you to walk in radical obedience to him. I remember author and pastor Francis Chan talking about this one time. Um, funny story, I was at a conference uh, with Francis Chan and I was speaking at one of the breakout sessions and Francis was, you know, obviously the keynote speaker and all this. I told the story before, but it's just a fun story to tell. It has nothing to do with my message. But, um, you know, I get, up, I get up in front of like, uh, you know, I don't even know how many, like it was like four or 500 like high school kids it was a high school uh, conference. Uh, it's called Life Conference that our uh, denomination does every three years. I said, hey, wasn't Francis amazing? Wasn't he amazing? Did you know that he's my uncle? Like, he's, like we're related. And they're like, no way. That's awesome. I'm like, no, no, I'm just playing. I'm playing. Yeah, I'm, I have no connection with Francis. Anyway, again, nothing to do with the message. Francis Chan, I remember him talking about this illustration one time. And maybe you heard this illustration as well. I just thought, man, that's it. That's it. That right there. What, what, what you're talking about, Francis, is that's what James is getting at. He says this. He says, you know, most Christians, what they tend to do is they take the commands of God, right, uh, We'll just take one of the commands, for example, here this morning. Let's take the Great Commission, for example. We won't even take the whole Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's a command, okay? Believe it or not, that's a command that's given to us as his church, as the body of Christ. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. What most Christians do with that is they check the box and they sign off on it. They say, yep, I agree with you, Jesus. It's a good point. I really like what you're saying here, Jesus. I'll even amen to that, right? Like, it's like, I agree with the sentiment of that command. Some might even go back to their rooms and they might meditate on the command. Go and make disciples of all nations. They, they'll, they'll marinate in that. They'll, you know, they may even commit it to memory, you know, like, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. That's really good, Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations. Others might even be inclined to gather a group of friends and say, hey, come on over. Let's study this command together. Let's have a Bible study around this. Go and make disciples. So what do you think Jesus means by this? What do you think Jesus means by this? I think he means this. And we have a, uh, by, some might even geek out together and study the, the command in its original language in Greek and Hebrew and Francis Chan is talking about all of this and he's saying this is what the church does with the commands of Christ 
We go and, and, and we do all of these things, but when judgment day comes and you're face to face with God, giving an account for your life, he's not gonna wanna know, did you believe my commands? Did you study my commands? Did you learn my commands in the original language in Greek and Hebrew? Did you learn all of these things? Did you have small group Bible studies around my commands? No, 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 those aren't gonna be the kinds of questions our Lord Jesus asks us. What he's gonna wanna know is, did you obey my commands? Did you do them? Did you go and make disciples of all nations? Did you do anything with it? See, that's the difference between a living faith and a dead faith. A living faith leads us to radical obedience, a posture that says yes to God, however he's leading us, yes to you, God. Whereas dead faith never moves beyond just belief. I want to close out with this one final point. Living faith changes both heart and behavior, whereas dead faith changes one or none. Living faith, you want to, you want to run your test, you want to know if James, this, this warning about uh, a dead faith is for us, you run it through the grid. Living faith changes both heart and behavior, whereas dead faith changes one or none. Now, let me explain this briefly, okay? Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about the gospel and the power of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians, um, he says, our gospel came to you not only with word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. In other words, the gospel is not just the teachings of Jesus or the words of Christ. It is the power of God at work in us to change us. That's what the gospel does. It is the power of God in us to change us. In other words, it is all of who Jesus is that changes all of who we are from the inside out. That's, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is, is, is all of who Jesus is, not just his teachings, but yes, including his teachings, all of who Jesus is, the presence of Christ, the work of Christ, the words of Christ. It is all of who Jesus is that changes all of who we are from the inside out. In fact, every time you see Jesus interacting with sinners in the Bible, he always moved in that direction from the inside out, from the inside out. He almost never dealt directly with people's sins. If you, if you, realize, if you uh, sort of track the pattern of Jesus and how he interacted with sinners in the Bible, he almost never approached, his leading line was never, hey, let's talk about that sin. <laughs> Stop it. You know, that was never Jesus' approach. He, 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 you, never, you never saw him going up to a sinner and being like, that thing you're doing, it's wrong. You need to stop it. That's how the church tends to operate with sin, dealing with sin. It's like, come on, stop it. You know, like, you know better. The Bible says this, therefore you should stop it. Jesus almost never directly interacted with the sin itself, at least not at first. His primary concern always seemed to have been with the heart of the sinner. Hey, let's... Let's get to what's behind some of this stuff. You know this junk in your life? You know those five husbands that you had? Like, let's, let's get to that. What's, what's behind that? What's behind the hurt and the pain here? What, what's the heart of the sinner? Because Jesus knew, he knew, if he can change your heart, your behaviors would soon change. Change came from the inside out. Let me, let me illustrate it for you this way. If you were to follow the simple di diagram, I've got a, uh, just a quick little diagram here for you to just follow along. You might say that the ways in which Jesus operated was in this first way. 
a changed heart, like Jesus was after changing people's hearts. He even said a word to the Pharisees. He's like, you think you're, you know, you're offering all of these things. You're, you're cleaning up your outward self. You're cleaning up your outward life. But inside, you're rotting away. You're like whitewashed tombs. Like you're, you're dead inside, right? You've got dead faith, right? So he was after people's hearts. So changed heart that, led, that leads to changed behavior. Almost always when Jesus got to heart change, behavior change would soon follow. People began to walk differently. People began to see differently. Literally, the blind eyes began to see. The, the, the lame began to leap. There was a change, a radical change in behavior that yielded true living faith. That's according to, the, the, based on the, the language, the vernacular of James, that's how Jesus operated. Jesus would get to the heart that would lead to change behavior that would yield true living faith. The second piece I see often in churches everywhere, you get a changed heart, but you don't quite have any sort of level of change behavior, which then yields a surface level faith. In other words, our hearts are flooded with good feelings. Like, my my heart is changed. My heart is broken. My heart is touched by God. Like, we're flooded with all these strong emotions. And guys, I am not anti-emotions. I'm a big emotional guy. I'm big on emotional health. I'm big, like, on on getting in touch with your emotions, okay? Like, we are created as emotional beings, and I think a lot of reasons why we see mishandling of sin in the church is because we are not handling emotions very well. And so, and, but, but really, when you look at this sort of second tier uh, kind of faith lived out, our hearts are flooded with all these good emotions. And over time, it just ends up fizzling out because it's not accompanied by any substantial outward change or any kind of tangible expression of that faith. We see this happen all the time as folks go on things like retreats and, 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 and you know, religious sort of spiritual experiences and conferences like that. Many of us have come back recently from retreats. For many of us, we've gone through Retreat after retreat from high school years and youth group and, and, and to our time here at Penn State and different fellowships. And we, 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 we go through these retreats and we see this happen. We encounter some powerful moments over a weekend experience and then we come back and it feels like for so many of us, we come crashing down from this mountaintop experience to this spiritual crash. And that's because we may have had some heart change, but it's never translated into outward behavior that then consequently ends up with a superficial, surface-level faith. It's like we have, this becomes like the surface-level faith. What it ends up becoming is a whole lot of good memories, but not a lot of life change. Like we had a lot of good memories on that retreat. God did this thing, but it's like my life is really largely the same. Not much has changed. Right, so that, that's, that's change of heart, okay, but not really translating into change of behavior or, or and this can be a, a, for a number of different reasons, but one piece could be a lack of obedience. It's like God has called us to these things and we just latch onto the emotions and we're like, God, I, I, I'm gonna, can I just hold on to that? Can I hold on to the good feelings? I know that what, I know that at this retreat, you, you called me to this thing. You called me to obey you in this way. But I just would really rather hold on to the good feelings. 
You know, like, and then let the obedience stuff work itself out later. You know, it's like that, that's that change of behavior that we're talking about that leads to surface level of faith. And then the finally, uh, some of us, we, again, for, for my upbringing in, in church life, I saw a lot of this, which was an emphasis on changed behavior with no change of heart that then yields performance-driven faith. This is the kind of faith where it's all about working and performing and looking the part. This is the ultimate imposter syndrome where you're trying to live up to these standards that you know deep down inside you don't meet internally. There's this dissonance between your public self and your private self. There's a massive incongruence between the self you're projecting onto the world and the self that you know to be behind closed doors. There's this dissonance. And that kind of dissonance can only lead to one place, a performance-driven faith, where now you've got to keep up that act, you've got to keep up the work, and you've got to keep up the performance. All the while, there's this deep disconnect internally for your soul. I've lived much of my life that way. I grew up in a, a, a Korean United Methodist church that was heavy into, you gotta look the part. Which by the way, uh, my Asian brothers and sisters will know this, we come from an honor and shame culture that is largely based on how well we perform. And maybe, this doesn't have to be just a primarily Asian thing, maybe you grew up in a sort of similar context where you feel like you've you've gotta meet the standard, measure up, you gotta perform at a certain level whether it's academically, whether it's in sports, whether it's in your family life, you're, you're constantly being compared to a sibling or friends in your circles. And then somehow you translate that into your, your, your spiritual life and somehow you think to yourself, I've performed in every area of my life, surely I need to perform here as well. God expects me to meet this standard and perform at a certain standard. And then what you end up with is really resentment because you're working, you're working, you're working, and you're changing your behavior, but there's this disconnect with what's happening internally, and you're like, that's why people walk away from the faith. It's like, this isn't worth it. This isn't worth it. James is trying to show us here that the kind of faith that we are called into is this kind of faith that changes both heart and behavior. I love the way James ends this passage. He says it this way, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Friends, believe it or not, we need both faith and works. We need a change of both heart and behavior, not one or the other, but both. Now for you Bible scholars out there, you may be asking yourself, but, but wait a second, doesn't, isn't there like some place in the Bible where Paul, I think maybe the Apostle Paul says something about like you're not justified by works but by faith alone, right? Like w- what about that? In fact, Paul mentions this several times in his letters to various churches everywhere in the Asia Minor region. Now that's, that, that message seems to contradict what James is saying here in his letter. James is saying your faith without works is dead Paul says, your faith is established by what Jesus has done, and that alone, not by works. Your works don't matter. It, it seems like that's, that's the message. We're not going to address that this morning. We're actually going to address that at our next midweek gathering. Johnny's going to bring a teaching. He mentioned it during the announcements. He's going to bring a teaching for us where he talks about justification 
through faith, not by works. And it'll sort of be the counterpart to this message. And so if you're interested, you can join us for that. If you can't make it uh, there, ask Johnny for his notes and he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. Uh, But let let me leave you with this for now. In fact, worship team, you guys can come on up. If you were to take inventory of your life this morning, friends, I I want you to consider this. If you were to take inventory of your life this morning, would you say that your faith is deeply integrated into all aspects of your life or is your life compartmentalized? Is faith just a part? Do you have a rack of hats hanging in your hallway that you just take, swap in, out, in, out, on, off, on, off? Is your faith deeply integrated or is it more compartmentalized? Would you say that your faith leads you to radical obedience? Or have you made it a point, an objective in your faith journey to just believe? Now, can I just say that Believing for some of us, I, I sort of said this quickly and in passing, and I, I, need to, I need to just run it back just for just a quick second. I said believing is the easy part. And yet I know that there are some of us that have a hard time believing the truth. I know that for some of us, we have a hard time believing like, and when I say believing, I don't mean like understanding cognitively, like, I, oh, I've heard that before. I'm talking about believing down here. I was having a conversation with a, a friend of mine not, not too long ago, just recently. He was saying, Dan, I just, I don't know how to do this, man. Like, I, I know it. Like the things that are coming out of your mouth, I'm hearing it and I, I know it. I know it but I just, I don't know how to know it down here. I'm wrestling with that. And so I don't wanna wanna downplay the struggle of believing. Can I just offer a word of encouragement for those of you who are there? I think what God wants more than anything in this pursuit of holding on to belief and grasping for belief are two things, it's openness and hunger. It's openness and hunger. I, I Just over and over again in scripture, what I see is people who have a hard time believing it down here, as long as they're open and hungry, God is faithful in leading them to that place of showing them. Revelation is the only thing that's gonna bring belief. They've gotta be revealed the truth. And so if you're open to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life and you're hungering for truth, God will get you there. God will get you there. And so for some of us, we're like, Dan, I'm I'm, I'm that guy. I believe it up here, but I have a hard time grabbing hold of it down here. Stay open, stay hungry. But after believing it, there's got to come a point where then you say yes with your hands and your feet, where it's no longer about, okay, I believe it in my heart. We're good, right, God? No, no, God's like, well, now I'm calling you to do something with it. Live it out, live it out. Would you say that your faith has changed and is changing both your heart and behavior? Or are you stuck in a surface level of faith or a performance driven faith? Friends, this is how you tell whether you have a living faith or a dead faith. This is how you tell whether or not James 
chapter two is for you, for me, for us. This is how you tell whether you have a living faith or dead faith. And you wanna know the good news? If you run your life through that grid and through those three tests and you arrive to the conclusion, "Uh uh-oh, my faith is dead. I've compartmentalized my faith. I've just boiled down my belief of my faith in Christ to just believing in good principles, not really living any of this out. You know, Uh, I, I, I am... I got some heart change, maybe some behavior change. I'm not really sure where I stand, but the conclusion is I think my faith might be dead. Honest assessment. The good news for you and for me, friends, is we have a God who is in the resurrection business. We have a God who loves to take dead things and make it alive again. All you need to do is say, Lord, here's my heart. I think I might have a case of the dead faith. God, would you, would you cause life to come forth? Would you resurrect my heart in such a way that I would exhibit, that I would embody, that I would live out of a living, vibrant, life-giving, transformative kind of faith that would change me from the inside out? God, would you give me that kind of faith? Just offer him our hearts, every part of it, friends, just watch what God will do with it. Can I pray for us? Can I pray that God would help us in that way?